Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Uh, thank you for sharing. Uh, if you come to Harvest here, you, you know that uh, every week, unless we're, uh, unless we're doing the sacraments, we have uh, testimonies that you hear. Um, this Saturday, if you come out to our youth meeting, I'll be sharing my story of how I came to know the Lord. And maybe if you've been sitting here, whether you, know, you may not believe in Jesus, you may just be checking things out or trying to listen to um, what is it, well, what's Christianity all about? And you begin to, to kind of hear and, and begin to sense these patterns, right? People come up here and they talk about how uh, I grew up in church or I didn't grow up in church, but uh, I started coming to church somehow and, and whatever it was that I was believing in, whatever it was that I put my hope in, whatever it was that I was living out in my life um, was going pretty good, was going okay, and then this crisis point hits and everything falls apart. And the thing that I had put my hope in in order to give me meaning and significance didn't give me meaning and significance. And so um, there was Jesus waiting for me, and uh, <clears throat> I gave my life to him. And I trusted him, and I've been following him ever since. If you're a skeptic and you hear that, then it's easy for you to think, okay, I get it. I understand what this Christianity is about. Jesus is this opportunistic kind of predatorial person who waits for you to get to the lowest moment of your life, and then he pounces on you. The church is like that. They wait for people, and they see people who are going through hardship. They're going through struggle. They're going through all this stuff. They just got fired. They just lost somebody. They just going through a divorce. They, they, their parents are going through a divorce, and then the church jumps on them and says, you need Jesus. The skeptic might say, well, Christianity then is basically a crutch for people who don't have anything else to live for. The way that Ted Turner once said it, Christianity is a religion for losers. People who have nothing to live for, they've got no hope, they've got nothing in life. And so they realize, well, maybe this Jesus can get me through. He's a crutch for hopeless people who don't have any other hope in this life. How would you respond to that? Is Christianity, is Jesus Christ a crutch for your jacked up, messed up, broken life, a figment of somebody's imagination 2,000 years ago that we throw out to you because you have nothing else to live for, because you're a loser in this life? Are we all gathered here because at the worst moments of our lives, when we're the biggest losers... Someone came into our life and said, you need Jesus, and this Jesus will give you hope. How would you respond to that? Are they right? How would Jesus respond to that? Because my hope is that I can explain to you how Jesus might respond to that, and by hearing how Jesus would respond to that, to see how we ought to respond to people who talk in that same way to us. Cool? John 14. John 14, we're uh, kind of come to the end of the road when it comes to Jesus' life. Last week, we looked at John chapter 11. I said, this is the last miracle that Jesus did, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. At this point on, after this last miracle, I mean, they, they've never seen anything like this. He's healed people. He has done a lot of cool things. He's raised a girl who was sick and who was dead. He's fed 5,000 people, but never seen someone whose body was in a tomb for four days, body was stinking, decomposing, and raised that person to life. And the Jewish leaders, the religious establishment, begin to think, holy cow, when Rome finds out that there's this man raising dead people, then they're going to hate us because everyone's going to follow this Jesus. It's better that we get rid of this one man than for our whole nation to be wiped out by the oppressors in Rome. And so John 11 the raising of Lazarus from the dead, began the end for Jesus. No more crowds, no more miracles. The plot to arrest him was set fully in motion. We fast forward here to John chapter 14, and we have effectively come to the end of Jesus' life. 
In John 14, we are on Maundy Thursday. Unbeknownst to his disciples, Jesus has just had his last meal together with them. He's washed their feet. He's predicted that Peter's going to deny Jesus. He's predicted that Judas is going to betray Jesus. Judas has left the building in order to bring the religious leaders to arrest Jesus. And John 14 begins what's called the farewell discourse. This is the last words that Jesus would say to his disciples who have left everything in order to follow him. And they're about to lose everything within the next few hours. John 14, 1 through 7. This is the word of God for the people of God. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't even, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is God's word. Jesus here says probably one of the most controversial statements that any religious leader could say. It says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, John 15, John 16 is what's called the farewell discourse. The last night of Jesus' life, just a couple hours before he's going to be arrested, before his disciples' world would literally be flipped upside down, before the resurrection flips it right back, right side up again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, telling them, giving them words, huddling them up and saying, this is what you need to know because this is the end of my road as far as you know. I'll die, I'll raise again, I'll rise again, 40 days I'll be with you, and then you're on your own, empowered by the Spirit to go and live out my teaching. So what does he say? What would he say? What would he say to his people, and what does that mean for us? John 14. Three thoughts. Here's the first thing. Here's the first thing. Uh, You'll have trouble in this world. You'll have trouble in this world, but you don't have to be troubled. You'll have trouble in this world, but you don't have to be troubled. How's that comforting to anybody? Well, you know, it would be easier for Jesus to say, hey, you know what? Everything's going to be okay. I'm going to go. I'm going to die. I'll protect you from all trouble. That way, everybody will know that you're mine. Everyone else will get hurt. Everyone else will get destroyed. Everyone else's homes will be taken, but you guys will be okay. There'll be a bubble around you. I'll protect you, and everything will be cool. That would be more comforting if only it were true, but it's not. They know, okay, just a little bit, within uh, less than 24 hours, Their teacher, the one for whom they had abandoned everything, careers, families, businesses, occupations, they've left everything to follow him. In just a few hours, he's going to be nailed to a cross, and all of their hopes seemingly nailed with him. What Jesus is saying, John 14 through 16, it begins in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. It ends in chapter 16, verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you have peace, In this world, you will have trouble. 
but take heart, I've overcome the world. The farewell discourse begins with trouble and it ends with trouble. The whole theme of this discourse is that there will be trouble in this world. Okay, this, is, this is just ancient literature, ancient poetry. It's called an inclusio, how a message begins and ends, tells you everything about the theme and what that message is about. Jesus is saying, in this world, there will be trouble. He kind of <clears throat> destroys this idea that, hey, you know what? If I don't mess with people, and nobody's going to mess with me. And if I just, you know, if I stay in my lane, everything's going to be okay. Nobody's going to bother me, and everything's going to be cool, and I'll, I'll be fine in this life. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's not the way it is. In fact, Jesus would be the clearest illustration. Like, whatever you believe about Jesus, okay, whether you're a, a Hindu, a Muslim, whoever you are, a Christian in here, Whatever you believe about Jesus, almost 100% universally accepted that Jesus Christ was the greatest person who ever lived. He cared for people. He loved them. He was kind. He was generous. He was uh, everything that you would want somebody in your family, everything you'd want a friend to be. But his life would end with his mangled and destroyed body hanging on a cross in the worst way possible. That was the end of his life. Jesus Christ is a perfect illustration. It wasn't an accident. In fact, Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus ever came. And he said, this man, Jesus, will be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. If there ever was a good person who did everything that you should do in this life, but face trouble, it's Jesus. And he's saying, listen, whatever happens in this life, whatever you do, even though you don't look and seek out hardship and suffering, in this world there will be trouble because that's the world in which we live. It's a broken world. It's a fallen world, and it doesn't work right. My kids love uh, drinking out of straws. And uh, sometimes, like, Elise will be drinking out of a straw, and then she'll, like, start uh, getting upset. Say, Elise, calm down. What's wrong? And she says, my straw doesn't work. And so we'll say, let me try. And so Olivia or I will we'll drink out of the straw. Elise is like our three, is our three-year-old uh, daughter. She'll drink it. We'll drink out of the straw and we'll realize the straw doesn't work because there's a slit in it. Somehow there's a slit in it. Maybe she squeezed it, we squeezed it, or we, we, when we were opening it up from the, from the packaging, the hole was busted in it. But the reason why it doesn't work, Elise, is because it's broken. And Jesus is saying, that's the way it is with our world also. The world doesn't work. You would think that this is how it works. Treat people nicely, do what's right, do what's good, do what's honorable, and that comes back to you. But Jesus is saying, no, in this world, it's not like that. The reason why is because our world is broken and it does not work right. So it pains me when I go on social media, and I see my friends this week with a hashtag, me too. As people that I love and people that I care about share their experiences, either veiled or unveiled, about how they too have been victims of sexual harassment and assault, both my friends who are men and friends who are women. And it breaks my heart that they weren't looking for these things, They didn't seek these things out, but these things happened to them and these things came to them because we live in a world that's broken and it doesn't work right and it's jacked up and it's messed up. And this is life in our fallen world. And Jesus is saying, this is the world in which you and I live. And he's warning his disciples and he's telling his disciples that this is the way that it is. Doesn't work out. 
all the time. Right? Jesus is living in the midst of this world, and he's telling his disciples, okay, understand this. Okay, understand this. In our world, it's broken. It's messed up. It's flawed. Uh, there will be trouble. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see is that your troubles will only fully be gone right, when you get home. So Jesus says in verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Saying, as your hearts, as you go through trouble in this life, here's the other reality that you don't have to be troubled by them. Even though this world is broken, even though this world is messed up, it is possible for you to live in such a way that these troubles do not overwhelm you. The NBA uh, basketball season started this week, and we're really excited um, to fast forward through the 82 games so that we can watch the Cleveland Cavaliers play against the Golden State Warriors in the finals. But we've got to go through this. And part of the season, sadly, is that there's injuries, and these things happen. And so the first day of the season... One of the biggest, one of the big stars of the NBA, Gordon Hayward, broke his leg, and it was gruesome, and it was nasty. The second day of the season, the greatest Asian hero, Jeremy Lin, busted his patella tendon, tendon got whatever happened. He got hurt. He wasn't looking for trouble, um, but trouble came looking for him. So let me tell you what he, what he said. He's got a group of uh, prayer supporters and people that he writes um, emails to to ask them to pray for him. And this is what he said, an excerpt of his prayer to his prayer group. He said, I'll keep this short, but first off, I want to take the time to praise God. He is equally loving, faithful, and in control through every situation, the highs and the lows. I'm thankful that God has given me tremendous peace in one of the most devastating times of my life. I'll be the first to say this peace isn't from me. God had been preparing me for this the last few weeks. I didn't know what was coming, but he kept telling me through time in the word, Bible study, conversation with friends, to give him the space to guide my steps. The phrase I've been repeating to myself is, God, do as you may. And listen to what he said. This tremendous peace in one of the most devastating times of my life, I'll be the first to say, this peace is not from me. Think, there will be trouble in this life. But you don't need to be overwhelmed, overcome. You don't need to be troubled in your heart. How? Well, the most important thing that Jesus is saying here is that your troubles in this life are going to come, but they'll only fully disappear when you're home. But what does that mean? What does it mean for us to be fully home? You know, <clears throat> whenever you're having a stressful day, well, there was this commercial. I don't know if you remember this. This is like from the 80s, so maybe... Uh, the upper ha crust, I wouldn't say ha half, but the upper part of our congregation may remember back in the day, there's this lady, and in, behind her, there's these scenes that are playing out, and she's like stressed out, and she's like, ah, oh, my life stinks, my boss, the baby, the car, the traffic, and then she calls out to this mysterious product, and she says, Calgon, <laughs> take me away. Does anyone remember that commercial? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where does she want Calvin to take her away? I'll tell you, if G what Jesus is saying is true, the only place you can be taken to really be free from your troubles is heaven. And the way Jesus describes heaven, this is what he says, verse 2, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. He goes on and he talks about this. You know, if you've ever been 
had a hard day at school, like you're super stressed out, you got your test back, or you took a test and you feel like you bombed it, or you get to school and your friends are talking badly about you, or there's this uh, rumor that's going around about you, or you have a hard day at work and, and you're stressed out and your boss is trying to kill you, and whatever the context might be. You got into a fight with your, with your, with your spouse on the way uh, to, to church, and whatever happens, right? The one place that you want to be, I just want to be home, in my bed, in my bubble bath with my cow, wherever it is, but you just, you just want to be home. You just want to go home. Being on a mission trip, you ask any missionary who's had an amazing mission trip, even if it was a terrible mission trip, but if it's an amazing mission trip, ask any missionary who's the one place you want to go. I just want to go home. Any kid who's gotten beat up on the playground, I just want to go home. Any person who's stuck in an airport for five days, wherever it is that they're going, been on a vacation, even the best vacation, after a while, the one place you just want to be, you just want to be home. Why? Because home is a place, in our minds we have this understanding, this is what home ought to be. Home ought to be a place where you can kick off your shoes, kick up your feet, and just relax. All your sorrows, all your troubles seem so far away when you're at home. A place where you can just relax, place where everything that happened out there doesn't touch you in here because home is supposed to be a sanctuary. It's supposed to be a haven. It's supposed to be a place where these things don't affect you. When I was in first grade, I remember uh, I would play a a lot in our neighborhood with our kids and uh, with the friends in our neighborhood. And and at the bottom of the hill, there was a house around a cul-de-sac and Joey and Wendy Adams, and I forget their little brother's name, but Joey and Wendy lived there. And so in that cul-de-sac, we used to play soccer, we used to play kickball, we used to play baseball because it was like the perfect baseball field. And we would play there. I remember being in first grade, Joey was three years older than me, he was in fourth grade. And so we were, playing, uh, we were playing stick ball, right, baseball, except you let the ball bounce before you hit it. We are playing, and, and I remember we got into an argument. I said, that pitch was a strike, and he said, no, it wasn't a strike. I said, yes, it was a strike, and he said, no, it wasn't a strike. And I said, yes, it was, and he said, stop arguing with me. And I said, no, I, I, I can argue with you because that was a strike. And he said, don't talk to me like that. I said, I can talk to you however I want. And he said, not on my premises. I said, What? He said, not on my premises. He's in fourth grade, okay? Maybe he knows that vocabulary word. I'm in first grade. I have no idea. I said, what does that mean? (laughs) And he said, this is my house, right? You can't argue with me at my house. I said, okay, I didn't know that. And so I walked away and let him have his ball, right? I didn't understand. What was he saying? He's saying, on my premises, when I'm at home, you can't come in and disrespect me in my house. You can't come in here and talk like that to me, not in my house. You can do that at your house. You can do it anywhere else, but not in my house because your home, your house is supposed to be a place where you're safe and where there aren't any problems and there is no stress and strife and hardship. That's why when your home becomes a place where you and your husband and you and your wife are always fighting, or your home becomes a place where mom and dad are always fighting, or you're always fighting with mom and dad, or you're always fighting with your children, nobody's going to want to come into that house because home has no longer become a haven and home has no longer become a sanctuary. Maybe that's why nobody wants to come over to your place because home is supposed to be a place where troubles 
seem so far away. And Jesus is saying, hey, okay, get this. The one place where you don't need to be overwhelmed by your troubles is in my Father's house. But if you listen and read what Jesus is saying, okay, if you read the next you know, first 14 verses of chapter 14, you'll realize that 14 times in these verses, Jesus says he's talking about my Father's house, which we tend to think of as heaven. Jesus uses the word Father 14 times in these 14 verses. In fact, in John chapter 2, Jesus uses the same word. He says, you've turned my Father's house into a den of robbers. What is Jesus saying? Back in that context, the Father's house was the temple, the dwelling of God. In John 14, he's talking about my Father's house, which we immediately begin to think of. That's heaven, the dwelling place of God. But what Jesus is saying is, yeah, the dwelling ultimately of God is in heaven, but here's a greater reality. He's not talking about a place. He's talking about a person. You will have trouble in this world, but you don't need to be overcome by those troubles, not because one day you're going to be in heaven. Yeah, there will be no trouble there. But he's saying the reason why you don't need to be overcome by your troubles, the reason why you don't need to let your heart be troubled is because you trust in the Father and you trust in Jesus. In other words, he's saying this is how we keep ourselves from being overwhelmed by the troubles in this world. We have an intimate life-engaging, soul-feeding relationship with our Father that's not only a future certainty, but it is a present reality. Can I ask you, are you experiencing the present reality of the nearness of the Father in your life, child of God? Not what you think and what you say, but literally day by day, moment by moment, are you experiencing the reality of the peace of God which overcomes your troubles in the same way that Jeremy Lin is doing it? He says, the reason God has been preparing me is because I've been in the Word of God. I've been going to Bible study. I've been hearing Him. I've been having godly relationships and conversations with people. If you're not engaged with those things, regardless of what you say you believe about Jesus, you will be overcome by the ever-present troubles in this life. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 I'm not talking about a place. I'm talking about a person. Is the struggle that you're facing the troubles in your life because your kids are not obeying you? Is that overwhelming you? Is it overcoming you? Is it troubling you? The most likely reason, if it is, is because we're not feeding on the peace that comes from a relationship, a real relationship, an ever-present relationship with your Father in heaven. Not, not just talking about I'm going through the motions of a relationship, but I'm engaging and I'm being satisfied deeply in Him so that I'm not telling God always how big my problems are, but I'm telling my problems how big my God is. Jesus is saying, the one place you'll be free from all your troubles is in the presence of God in heaven, but you can experience that on a practical level here and now. And this is what we ought to be experiencing if we rediscover who Jesus really is, because the last thing that we see is that Jesus is the only way home. Jesus is the only way home. It says this in these famous words in verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is very clear. He doesn't say, I am a way. I am a truth. 
and I'm alive. He makes it unequivocally clear and unmistakably clear that Jesus is saying, I'm the only way. I'm the only truth. And I'm the only life. I know this can be quite disturbing <laughs> in our day. But can I just go through some presuppositional apologetics here and deconstruct the worldview a little bit? <clears throat> I think deep in our hearts, we have a functional understanding of heaven and hell and that there are commandments and that we need a Savior. Because in every practical sense in life, we believe this to be true. If you're a, if you're, if you're a student, okay, if you're a student, whether middle school, high school, college, grad school, you have in your mind a picture of what heaven is for you as a student. Heaven is 4.0 or, you know, with all the weighted classes, 5.0. Heaven is number one in my class. Heaven is honor roll. Heaven is getting accepted into that great school or getting a job afterwards. That's what heaven is. How do I get there? Well, it's pretty simple, isn't it? You've got ten commandments that you need to fulfill in order to get there. I study. I go to class. I listen to my teacher. I take good notes. I get good sleep before an exam. I eat my breakfast. If I do these ten commandments, then it should be that I ought to get to heaven. And if I don't, then I'll end up in academic hell. What is that? Oh, I missed the grade. I got an F. Or if you're an Asian, I got a B plus. Right? That's your academic hell. And when you cannot fulfill the Ten Commandments in order to get to heaven, what do you do? You seek a Savior, an alternative means to get to heaven. What do you do? Some people, their Savior is, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to sit next to the smartest person in the class, and I'm going to pay them money in order that I might look off their test. I'm going to write the answers on the front of my hand so that I know these answers like the back of my hand. Right? We find ways in order to get, find a savior that gets us in. Maybe it's a tutor, maybe it's a class, whatever, to help you get up to speed. But we have this functional, practical understanding that there's a heaven, there's a hell, there's ten commandments, and if I don't meet the commandments, which we often don't, we seek a savior to get us there. Same thing is true as parents, right? You know, here, here's your understanding. Here's what heaven is for a parent. They stay out of jail. They get into a good college. They get a good job. They get a good high-paying job so that they can pay for us. If they're young kids, we put them to bed by 7. They're asleep by 7.01. This is what it means for us to be in parenting heaven, right? What is parenting hell? Our kids hate us. Our kids are in therapy by the time they're 12. <laughs> Our kids don't go to school, they, they drop out, they're, whatever it is, we have these ideas. And if we cannot make it to parenting heaven by fulfilling the Ten Commandments, we seek a Savior. I'm going to go to this parenting workshop that our church is offering, or I'm going to send them away to this, uh, this parenting boot camp so that they get this discipline in their life. We have this idea in our minds that in everything in life, you talk about your health, talk about your body, about getting fit. Right, body heaven is looking like our drummer who plays drums up there. That's my body heaven. i got to fulfill these Ten Commandments. If I don't get there, I go to body hell. We have this functional, practical understanding. I know what it is to be in heaven. I know what it is to be in hell. I know what it is to have commandments, and I know what it is to seek your Savior. At a broader level then, at a broader level, what Jesus is saying is what we intuitively know in our hearts. 
It's what we intuitively know in our hearts, that there's something that I'm longing for. There's something that I'm looking for. There's something called home because this world isn't right and it keeps on messing me up and there's trouble because even though I'm not seeking it out, it comes and it looks for me and it finds me. The reason it doesn't work right is because it's broken. And functionally, we know there's a place called home and I want to get there, but despite my best efforts, I haven't been able to get to that place. And we're looking for it, and we're longing for that place. And because we know that there's a moral something out there, in our hearts we know we ought to be good. We ought to do good things. We shouldn't go around killing birds or killing dogs or killing cats or killing people. We know that's not true intuitively because there's a superior moral order and there's something going on in our world that reminds us that these things are true. There's something deep in our hearts that speaks into our hearts that speaks into our existence, that tells us that we were made for more. Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, this is it. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And what C.S. Lewis says, every time we have a desire, it presupposes its fulfillment. If you desire something like sleep, you get tired, then it's telling you that there's such a thing in this world called sleep that you can engage in that will give you rest for that desire. The reason we get thirsty is because there's such thing as water that we can drink to quench that thirst. The reason we get hungry is because there is such thing called food. The reason we long for companionship is because it's not good to be alone, and there's people in this world with whom we're meant to connect. And in our hearts, there's a longing for a place called home. And we've looked and we've sought and we've tried and we've tried to find what that is. And here's what he says in mere Christianity. He says, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Guys, you and I were made for another world. We're made to be in relationship with God our Father, and we try to fulfill the Ten Commandments, which we know in our minds we ought to, but we fail and we fail and we fail, and so we seek substitute saviors in order to prevent us and to guard us and to shield us from the troubles of this life in order that we might finally feel satisfied. But the drugs and the substances and the alcohol, these things don't work for us. The popularity and the fame momentarily may work out, but it doesn't lead to a long-lasting solution. Success and significance and status and all the things that people of this world look to only leave us empty. Even love, even the best love in this world, even the best job in this world cannot satisfy that longing in our hearts. So Jesus stands up and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life No one gets home except through me. You've tried the commandments. You've tried moralism. You've tried relativism. You've tried all of the isms and worldviews, and they've all been found wanting. Jesus saying, I'm the way. Because without the way, there's no going. I'm the truth because without the truth, there's no knowing. I'm the life, and without the life, there's no living. Jesus says, I'm the only way. And you think, well, that's great 2,000 years ago. But we live in a culture of political correctness where every religious viewpoint, every secular viewpoint is equally valid. Can I remind you that in the time when Christianity began to spread, it was 
an even more pluralistic mindset than we have here in post-modernity. There was a there was just a mixing point in the time when Christianity began to spread of Judaism, of Greek thought, of Roman thought, of mystery religions, of Gnosticism, of these ancestral worship, of emperor worship, all of these things that were constantly talked about and constantly debated, and they were equally held to be true. And there was one place in particular called Mars Hill, the Areopagus, where these things would be debated. It's where Socrates would teach his views from, and people would come, and they would listen, and they would debate. And in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul stands up in the midst of that place with all of these pluralistic viewpoints and relativistic mindsets being thrown at him. He stands up, and unequivocally, he says, Jesus Christ is the only way, he's the only truth, and he's the only life. No one comes to the Father except through him. You think people believed? Earlier in the book of Acts, Peter preached and 3,000 people came to know Jesus. Paul preaches in Acts 17, and it says, a few people believed. (laughs) And what Paul is saying is, listen, just because you don't believe it doesn't mean that it's not true. And in this place, Paul would boldly stand and he would preach this message about the exclusive and unique claims of Christ. Nobody else said, I am the only way to heaven. I am the only way to salvation, but Jesus Christ alone, unique amongst all of the messianic pretenders and people who claim to be God. It was Jesus Christ and him alone who said, there is no other way. And he declared that with all of his life. And a few believed the Apostle Paul's message. Jesus is saying to us today, you live in a world where everything goes. Relativism, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Religious freedom to believe whatever you want to believe, that's our, that's our milieu today. But just because every religious viewpoint is acceptable doesn't mean every religious viewpoint is correct. In everything in life, Truth is always exclusive. If you make $45,000 a year, you make $45,000 a year, right? You might argue with that, right? Your wife might want you to make $80,000 a year, but because she doesn't agree with it doesn't mean it's not true. Five plus five equals 10, no matter where you go, as much as you don't want it to be true, truth is always exclusive. And Jesus is saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and anyone who comes to Christ, anyone who comes to the Father, anyone who has hope in heaven will come through that doorway. And so is Christianity a crutch? Jesus would say, absolutely, it's a crutch. Because our world is broken, and as a result of our broken world, we're broken. The presupposition of the Word of God is that we're broken, broken by sin, broken by the sinfulness and the the hurt in this world, broken because this world isn't right. Is Christianity a crutch? As much as we're broken and we're needing and we're hurting, absolutely Christianity is a crutch. I will say with my dying breath that Christianity is a crutch, and so ought you, because that's what Jesus said. It's not a crutch, though, that Jesus presents to you. It's a cross. The cross where weak made strong because the strong was made weak. 
me tell you a fact that these skeptics and that Ted Turner won't tell you. We're all broken in some way. Just as our world is not right, we're not right. And we will seek pseudo-saviors all around. We seek crutches all the time. We seek crutches to prevent us from harm, to deal with the hurt and the pain within our own lives by trying to become cool, by trying to become rich, by trying to become somebody. But all of these crutches break because they were never meant to hold up the weight that Jesus alone can. Yeah, Christianity is a crutch. That's why St. Augustine said years ago, the church is not a museum for perfected saints. It's a hospital for broken and hurting people. In every one of our lives, we're going to come to realize that we're broken. And Jesus is the answer, the great physician but just like anybody else, you want to be healed at a hospital by a doctor, by a physician, you've got to acknowledge that you're sick and that you're hurt and that you're needy. That's the baseline of every person in this world. The only question is, will you admit that? And will you believe that you need a Savior? Because if you do, there's only one, Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. I don't know if there's any of us who are in here today who feel like the reason why I haven't put my faith in Jesus Christ is because I don't think strong people do that. I don't think healthy people need a crutch like that. I've been doing quite well up until this point in my life. Thank you very much. Maybe as you hear these words, begin to realize, man, he's right. I am broken. This world is broken. I am crippled. And the crutches that I've used, man, no wonder I need to keep on getting new ones because the old ones keep on breaking. Maybe there is something to this Jesus. Maybe billions of people throughout the world have come onto something that I'm beginning to realize that I need a Savior. I need, I need Jesus in my life. In a couple moments, I'm going to give this invitation. If you're hearing this and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, in a couple moments, I'm going to give you the opportunity for you to put your trust in him, to be the crutch that you need, not only the crutch, but the way, the truth, the life. So ask yourself these questions, and maybe you can pray to God. Say, God, if you're real, help me, show me, teach me that this is true. And God will speak to your heart. He will. Maybe for others of us, been walking with the Lord, but we haven't really been experiencing a deep relationship with our Father. Jesus didn't say, hey, here's how you overcome troubles. I'm promising relief. No, he said, I'm promising a relationship. A relationship that will get you through 
Where your father is, that's where home is. And where your father is, that's where I am. That's what Jesus says. Maybe your renewal of your commitment this week, here and now, is God, I could recommit to spending 20 minutes every day with you so that I would be an overcomer because the overcomer lives in me not to be overcome, overwhelmed by my troubles. But Lord, through the power of God in my life, being an overcomer with Christ in me. Let's take a couple minutes right now to pray. Just talk to God at a practical level. Just talking to God. He knows your heart, so just tell him. God, if you're real, I want to know. I'm questioning, I'm doubting, I'm confused, I'm wondering, I'm seeking. Maybe others of you, it's, God, here are my troubles. They're heavy. I don't want to deal with them on my own. Let's just talk to God for a couple minutes. And then after a couple minutes, I want to give this invitation for anyone who wants to respond and say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I want to put him in my life. Forgive me. Be my Savior. I can't fulfill the commandments on my own. But with you, I can come home to the Father. Let's pray for a couple minutes. And we'll continue. continue to pray with our hearts if you're here maybe first time maybe uh, you've been coming to church for a long time you hear these words and you realize man I, I feel like that word is speaking to me I feel like God is calling to me and I need Jesus to be my savior to save me so that I can find rest for my soul in him and find a hope in heaven. As, a, as all of us pray, if you feel like that describes you, I just want to ask you in the next, uh, you know, over the next maybe 10 or 15 seconds, just go ahead and raise your hand. I'm not going to call you up here to the front or anything like that, but I just want to be able to see you, to recognize you from where you are in order that we might be able to pray and talk about what it is to have a relationship with God. That's me. Yeah, I need Jesus in my life. Can you raise your hand from where you are? Just give us a few more seconds to think about it and then, yeah, that's you. You respond. You can raise your hand. see anyone right now, so I'm going to pray for us. I really want to encourage us. Let's really uh, seek to know this God 
He's made himself known through his son, Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the beautiful and glorious truth of who you are and revealed in your son, Jesus. Thank you that his claims support his life, that he is the way and he is the truth and he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you, uh, through Jesus. Father, we pray that for all of the people in here who have already made that confession of faith, Lord, help us to live in deep awareness of who you are as the hope giver, as the overcomer, as a lifter of our heads and the strength in the midst of our troubles. So Lord, help us to grow in you in order that we might incarnate your hope to others. And for those of us in here who may not have yet made that choice, Father, we thank you that through your spirit you continue to knock on the door of people's hearts. We pray that you would allow them to hear your voice in order that you would come in and eat with them and they with you and experience a depth of fellowship. Thank you so much that this is who you are. Thank you that when we needed a crutch and our crippledness so much more than we know, that Jesus, you are the only one for us. Not only that, more appropriately, when we were dead, we were without hope. When we were enemies of the cross and enemies of our God, you demonstrated your love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for amazing love, amazing hope that's found in our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.